In the early 1930s, Loch Ness Monster mania grips Britain. A spate of sightings have been reported in local papers, and the countryside is overrun with visitors, desperate to catch a sight of the creature known as Nessie. Hotels are doing a roaring trade. Pubs are filled with locals telling their tales of the time they saw a strange beastie rising from the water. But what the world is crying out for is proof, concrete evidence that the monster actually exists. Then on April 21st, 1934, a photograph is published on the front page of the popular London Daily Mail, Britain's first tabloid newspaper. The grainy black and white image shows what appears to be the long, slender neck of a small head of a mysterious creature emerging from the surface of a body of water. The top of the creature's humped body can just be seen. The article accompanying the shot gives the location of the photograph as a large deep water loch near Inverness in the Scottish Highlands, Loch Ness. This is huge. It's photographic evidence that the Loch Ness monster exists. Not only that, there's enough detail in the photograph for scientists to identify what kind of creature the monster is. In fact, anyone who has a children's illustrated book of dinosaurs will recognize it as a plesiosaurus, a huge marine reptile that has been extinct for over 60 million years. If the image is real, the science books will have to be rewritten. If a Jurassic plesiosaur can survive the icy waters of a Scottish loch, who knows what other creatures might be walking the earth? The photograph will become the linchpin of belief in the monster's reality. It will convert skeptical scientists into fervent believers. For decades, it will do more to persuade people that Nessie exists than any other piece of evidence. Does the monster really exist? Asks the Daily Mail lead article breathlessly. Yes, the photograph unequivocally answers. But 60 years later, in 1994, another newspaper article will give a different answer. That article will be based on the confession of a man who died a few months earlier. Now that he is dead, the truth he has been holding onto for most of his life is finally revealed to the world. The truth about one of the most famous photographs in history and his part in faking it. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of a reclusive monster called Nessie. It's also the story of a reclusive man called Christian Sperling, and the secret he kept for almost 60 years. It's about a harmless prank that grew into a legend believed by millions, one of the most iconic photographs ever, and the men who conspired to fake it. It's about the desire to believe and the need to have something to believe in. It's about reputations destroyed and dreams shattered. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. On Friday, April 20th, 1934, the offices of the Daily Mail are abuzz with excitement. Everyone's talking about the photo. Editor-in-Chief W.L. Warden calls in his assistant Arthur Cranfield for a last-minute meeting before they set the printing presses rolling. If the photograph is genuine, the two newspaper men are sitting on a gold mine. The nation is obsessed with the monster, and the mail is set to be the paper that finally proves Nessie's existence. Sales will go through the roof, the competition will be left standing, and Warden's reputation as a Fleet Street editor will be made. Everything hinges on the man who brought them the photograph. Warden wants to know who the fellow is and how he came to take the picture. Cranfield assures him that the photographer, Mr. Robert Kenneth Wilson, is above suspicion. A decorated hero in the First World War, Wilson studied medicine at Cambridge and is now a respected doctor. Warden casually asks what his specialism is. Gynecology, answers Cranfield. Warden holds up his hand. Daily Mail readers don't need to know that detail. They'll just describe him as a surgeon. It's almost too good to be true, especially as Wilson is willing to be named in the article. That lends the photograph so much more credence. Besides, Warden knows that if the Daily Mail doesn't run the picture, the good doctor will take it to one of their rivals and Warden will become known as the editor who turned down the scoop of the century. Cranfield hands his boss Wilson's account of how he took the photograph, as written up earlier that day by a staff reporter. The doctor begins by saying that he knows the area around Loch Ness well, and that on his last visit, he took his camera with him in the hope of seeing the monster. He was driving around the loch near the small village of Invermoriston on the western shore. In Wilson's own words, the sky had just cleared after a storm when, at about midday, I decided to stop and enjoy a quiet smoke at the lockside. I got my camera out of my car and made it ready in case I should spy the monster. After a few minutes' stroll, I placed my camera on the ground and walked a little farther on to find a spot to sit down. I had walked about 20 yards on when I saw a sudden commotion in the waters between 150 and 200 yards from the shore. I saw the head of some strange animal rising up out of the water. Warden feels the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. The old newspaperman's thrill in the presence of a great story. This is the big one. The once-in-a-lifetime scoop that will make his career. He can almost see the whole of Fleet Street bowing down before him. Mr. Wilson goes on. I was so excited that I did not stop to observe it properly. 
Instead, I raced for my camera and then, focusing on the object moving about in the water, I took four photographs. Just as I took the last of my photographs, the head began to sink from view. The level of detail in the account is convincing. The precise location, the description of the weather, the distances mentioned, the way Wilson has to run back for his camera. At first, this last detail strikes Warden as odd, but when he thinks about it, it makes sense. It's almost as if Wilson didn't really expect to see the monster. Maybe he even felt a bit foolish about looking for it, which is why he left the camera on the ground and casually walked away from it. Wilson comes across as a reluctant monster hunter, more embarrassed by what happened to him than someone seeking the limelight. W.L. Warden's gut is telling him that the doctor is a reliable witness and that his photograph is genuine. But for Warden, there's a lot at stake, not least his reputation and that of his newspaper. This is the beginning of the era of news as entertainment. And rising up through the American school of popular journalism, W.L. Warden has a good instinct for what sells newspapers. Scoops and stunts. The more sensational the scoop and the more eye-catching the stunt, the better. But the Daily Mail has a history of falling victim to hoaxes, and Warden himself had his fingers burnt. What's more, the hoax he fell for was all to do with the Loch Ness Monster. To understand what happened, we have to look into the origins of Loch Ness Monster fever. It's often said that the first recorded sighting of the Loch Ness Monster was by St. Columba in the 6th century AD. According to the story, Columba was traveling near the River Ness when news reached him of a swimmer who had been killed by a beast that lived in the water. Perhaps rashly, one of Columba's own companions took to the water and the monster reappeared. To save the man, Columba made the sign of the cross and ordered the monster to back off. Naturally, when the monster obeyed, everyone watching on the shore was immediately converted to Christianity. It has to be said that the lives of saints are chock full of tales of miracles and monsters. Without wishing to cast doubt on the word of St. Columba or his chronicler, it seems likely that his monster is allegorical rather than literal. You have to wait quite a long time, over a thousand years in fact, for the next possible sighting on record. In the 1730s, Workmen constructing a road along the shoreline spot two great leviathans in the water. They think they might be whales. The word monster is not mentioned. The next incident is a good hundred years or more after that. In 1880, a diver called Duncan MacDonald described seeing a very odd-looking beastie, like a huge frog, sitting on a rock near a wreck he was inspecting. He was so shaken he vowed never to dive in Loch Ness again. Given the peat-obscured murk of the depths, we can't really be sure what Duncan saw. Also in the 1880s, another MacDonald, Alexander this time, claims to have seen a creature like a giant salamander swimming about in the loch. While a man called Roderick Matheson reports seeing the biggest eel I have ever seen from a schooner. So it's fair to say that there's a long tradition of people seeing strange creatures in the loch, but it's less clear what they're seeing exactly. But in the 1930s, things really step up a gear. That's when monster sightings start to come thick and fast. On August 27, 1930, the Northern Chronicle newspaper reports how one evening, at around 8.15, three young men from Inverness are on Loch Ness, 
fishing from a boat. Suddenly they see a great commotion in the water. In the words of one of the witnesses, we could see a wriggling motion, but that was all, the wash hiding it from view. The wash was, however, enough to cause our boat to rock violently. We have no idea what it was, but we are quite positive it could not have been a salmon. Interestingly, the three young men are not named in the account. Not only that, the identity of the reporter isn't given either. There doesn't really seem to be much to the story, except for a sudden wave disturbing the water. It's intriguing, but there's not quite enough substance to the story. The anonymous reporter needs more. He tracks down another man who claims to have seen something in the lock many years ago. In his case, an unidentifiable creature moving up and down in the water, as big as an upturned angling boat. Again, the identity of the witness is not revealed. Though the reporter describes him as a keeper who dwells on the shore of the lock, of unimpeachable veracity and a first-rate observer. Even so, we can't help wondering if the tale was told over a few drams of good scotch whiskey in front of a roaring fire. If we were of a particularly suspicious mindset, we might even wonder if the anonymous reporter hadn't made it all up. That many years ago doesn't exactly inspire confidence. Even so, this Northern Chronicle article is important because in the closing paragraph, the reporter invites readers to get in touch with their own stories and sightings. And that's when Nessie Fever starts. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It all reaches ahead in 1933, a bumper year for sightings. In April, for example, the Inverness Courier reports a large whale-like creature seen by an unnamed local businessman and his wife, a university graduate. Once again, the credibility of the witnesses is borne out by their respectable position in society, even if their names are, for now, withheld. Then in August, the same newspaper prints a letter from Mr. George Spicer of London, he and his wife were driving beside the lock when a strange creature crossed the road about 50 yards ahead of them. He describes it as being the nearest thing to a dragon or a prehistoric monster he had ever seen, with a long neck and big body. He also claims the creature was carrying a small animal of some kind. The Nessie encounters continue. In November, a man called Hugh Gray takes what is claimed to be the first ever photograph of the monster. The photograph appears to show a long, dark serpentine shape thrashing about in the water. It's a tantalizing image, but open to interpretation. One expert suggested it could be mere wreckage. And though Gray has described the creature he photographed as about 40 feet long, there is no way to gauge the size from the photograph alone. For many, it's a huge breakthrough. 
Interest in the monster reaches fever pitch. It seems like concrete proof that Nessie is real lies just around the corner. And it's around now that W.L. Warden of the Daily Mail becomes involved in the hunt for the first time. Inconclusive or not, Hugh Gray's photograph whips up enthusiasm for monster hunting to new heights. In December 1933, Warden wants a piece of the action. He sends a team to Loch Ness. The expedition is led by big game hunter Marmaduke Wetherell. Duke Wetherell was born in Britain, but has spent most of his life till now in South Africa. He's a larger-than-life character, a colorful raconteur with a gleeful spark in his eye. He's also something of a showman, judging by his other occupations of actor and movie director. But there's a serious side to Duke, too. He's a fellow of both the Royal Geographical Society and the Zoological Society. A life of adventure and exploration in Africa has provided him with a fund of knowledge about the natural world. Duke has in tow his own cameraman, Gustav Pauli, a skilled wildlife photographer who worked with him on some of his movies. There to represent the Daily Mail are its star reporter, F.W. Memory, and the paper's photographer, W.R. Turner. Perhaps this is a sign that the Mail doesn't quite trust Duke and his photographer. Or maybe they just want to be sure that if there is an opportunity to snap the creature, they have their own man there to do it. Their mission to find the monster is soon the talk of the Lockside villages. The Inverness Chronicle reports Duke's plan to patrol the shore of the lock and set off flares if the monster is sighted and how he also hopes to photograph the monster and track it to its lair. Duke makes a breakthrough surprisingly quickly, on the very first day of his expedition, in fact. He's patrolling the lock on a motorboat when he spots some white staining on the east shore. As a big game hunter, he recognizes it as the kind of marking you find around hippo lakes. Could this be Nessie marking her territory? The next day, he extends his searches to a more remote part of the lock further south. There, he makes an even more remarkable discovery. Mysterious animal footprints on the shore. It's like a scene out of the smash hit movie of the year, King Kong, with Duke playing the part of the adventurer filmmaker Carl Denham. Duke and Polly sketch and photograph the prints they find, or spore, as hunters call animal tracks. They even take a plaster cast. Whatever made the prints, it is not one of the animals known to inhabit the lock. In Duke's words, the spore indicates an animal with feet not unlike those of a hippopotamus or rhinoceros. Locals are skeptical. No one has ever found anything like this before. Even the Daily Mail reporter F.W. Memory can't quite believe the speed at which the tracks have been discovered. He suggests to Duke that the prints might have been put there for him to find. Duke is defiant. It's down to his experience, he says. The wider British public is eager to believe Duke's story, and his discovery is great news for the local tourist industry. Over Christmas and New Year, visitor numbers break all records, and the Daily Mail's coverage of the mystery guarantees healthy circulation figures. Meanwhile, the cast is carefully packed and transported to the Natural History Museum, while the Mail's readers are left on tenterhooks waiting for the scientists' verdict. Leading the panel of experts is Dr. W.T. Kalman, the Natural History Museum's keeper of zoology. He unwraps the package excitedly. The male is eager for an instant opinion, but Dr. Kalman is guarded, warning them not to expect a pronouncement before the end of the week. When it comes, it is not exactly what the paper had hoped for. 
The impressions are identical to those made from a mounted specimen of a juvenile hippopotamus foot. It looks suspiciously like someone planted the prints on the shore using a hunting trophy. Duke Weatherall is given the benefit of the doubt. No one accuses him of faking the tracks himself. He is assumed to be the victim of a practical joke, the locals having fun at the expense of the gullible fools from London. For the editor, W.L. Warden, it's a humiliating end to the story. As he feared, he is the laughing stock of Fleet Street, with rival papers like the London Times mocking the whole sorry saga of the Daily Mail's ill-fated monster hunt. The hippo foot debacle is only a few months behind Warden when he has to make a decision on whether to publish R.K. Wilson's photograph. But the sober, reticent doctor is a very different proposition from the attention-seeking Marmaduke Wetherell. And a photograph backed up by an eyewitness statement beats a few dodgy prints in the soil. This is the monster hunter's holy grail and Fleet Street gold. For Warden, it's vindication. It will silence his critics and confound his enemies. So he goes with his gut and gives the green light to publish. The so-called surgeon's photo is the lead story for Saturday, April 21st. There for all to see is the elongated neck and small head of a prehistoric monster, rising sedately from the rippled surface of the water. The sensational photograph is blown up and splashed across the front page. Not only that, the paper throws its editorial weight behind the photograph's authenticity. Warden approves the wording. The Daily Mail is today able to print exclusively a remarkable picture. Taken by a West End surgeon of the mysterious Loch Ness Monster whose occasional appearances have so intrigued the world for months. It's a bold statement. There's no sitting on the fence. This is the real thing. It's the monster, there in black and white. Then, to add an air of scientific objectivity, the paper speaks to a couple of experts, including Dr. Kalman of the Natural History Museum. He's the man who made the damning pronouncement on Duke Wetherill's hippo prints. Kalman raises the possibility that the creature might be a diving bird, but that would depend on Wilson being mistaken about the size of the monster. The Daily Mail lists Wilson's impeccable credentials and leaves it for the reader to decide how likely that is. The bottom line is, Kalman is stumped. He confesses. No, I can't even hazard a guess at it. It certainly is most extraordinary. The other expert is Seth Smith, curator of mammals at London Zoo. With careful understatement, he describes the picture as one of the most interesting photographs he has ever seen. Neither expert raises the possibility that the photograph might be fake, or that the respected Mr. Wilson might be a liar. They both treat it as evidence of something, even if it is something they can't explain. For example, Smith suggests that the creature shown might be a sea serpent, only to dismiss that theory because it has been photographed in a freshwater lock, not out in the ocean. Right from the start, the scientific community seems to take the photograph seriously. For almost 60 years, it continues to be taken seriously. It does more than any other image to persuade people that the Loch Ness Monster exists. Today, in the era of Photoshop and fake news, people have learned to be skeptical of anything they see in the media, no matter what its source. Our instinct is to question everything. So it's hard to understand how a single grainy black and white image can remain unchallenged for so long. In 1934, the world was a very, different place. It's a time before CGI special effects, 
when movie audiences were gripped by the creaky stop-motion models of Ray Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien. It was a more trusting age, too. Certainly when it came to the word of a man like Robert Kenneth Wilson. Don't forget, Wilson was not just a Cambridge-educated doctor. He was an officer and a gentleman, too. But none of this quite explains how the photograph exercised such a hold for so many years. Thanks in large part to the surgeon's photo, multiple generations of monster hunters will devote their lives to the cause of proving Nessie's existence. Huge sums of money will be spent on rigorous scientific surveys using the best technology available at the time. Submarines, radar, sonar equipment, underwater cameras, NASA computers, all will be put at the service of proving the existence of a mysterious creature in a deep Scottish loch. But that's easier said than done. The geography of the loch has a lot to do with it. Viewed from the air, Loch Ness is a long, thin sliver of water, 22 miles in length with a maximum width of 1.7 miles. What that aerial view won't tell you is how deep the loch is. Locals traditionally considered it bottomless. It isn't. Quite. At its deepest point, the loch measures 126 fathoms, or 755 feet making it the largest body of water by volume in the British Isles. The soil around Loch Ness is rich in peat, which means that visibility in the water is extremely low, even just a few feet beneath the surface. In the lower depths, it's virtually impenetrable. Not only is there plenty of room in there for a monster to lurk, but also no one would ever know it's there, unless it sticks its head above the surface now and then. Loch Ness is a vast emptiness which we can fill with the creatures of our imagination. And the truth is, people see what they want to see, believe what they want to believe, even sometimes when they are presented with evidence to the contrary. On December 7, 1975, 41 years after the surgeon's photograph is published, a newspaper column appears in the Sunday Telegraph. The headline is, The Making of a Monster. It's a lighthearted gossip piece by Mandrake, the pen name used by writer Philip Purser. In the article, Mandrake claims to have tracked down the man responsible for faking the most famous photograph of the Loch Ness Monster ever taken. First, a little bit of context. In 1975, monster mania is once again riding high. The scientific world has been thrown into turmoil by rumors of a set of underwater photographs. These supposedly show the Loch Ness Monster's flipper, head, and overall body shape. At the time the Mandrake article appears, these photographs are still under wraps. They will soon be revealed at a conference convened by the noted naturalist, wildlife artist, and TV presenter Peter Scott. Scott will also publish an article in the highly reputable scientific journal, Nature, vouching for the veracity of the photographs. Scott is no new age monster hunting crank. He has both credentials and credibility, as well as establishment connections. He's the founder of the Worldwide Fund for Nature, and the son of one of Britain's most famous explorers, Robert Falcon Scott, better known as Scott of the Antarctic. In many ways, Peter Scott is the David Attenborough of his day. For him to throw his weight behind the monster's existence is a huge deal. These hotly anticipated photographs are what spark Mandrake's Sunday Telegraph piece. The opening paragraph lays it out. The man who took the most famous Loch Ness monster photograph of all time comes clean. It was a fake. Mandrake doesn't explicitly refer to the surgeon's photograph, but it's clear that's what he's talking about. 
as he says the photograph was published in the Daily Mail in 1934. The source of this startling revelation is not a retired London gynecologist, as we might expect. It's the 63-year-old landlord of the Cross Keys pub in Chelsea. Back in the day, this gentleman had been a film actor performing under the name Ian Collin. His real name is Ian Wetherill, and he is the son of one Marmaduke Wetherill, a big-game hunter, adventurer, film director, and actor. And according to Ian Wetherill, he and his father took the photograph. As Ian tells it, Duke was unhappy with the male's negative reaction to his failed monster expedition. So he said, All right, we'll give them their monster. Ian goes on. We made it from one of those little model submarines you could buy for about half a crown, plus some rubber tubing and what have you. It was only a few inches high. We found an inlet where the tiny ripples would look like full-sized waves out on the lock. Then it was just a matter of winding up the sub and getting it to dive just below the surface so the neck and head drew a proper V in the water. I took about five shots, and then a water bailiff turned up. Dad put his foot on the monster and sank it. And that was that. The article appears and disappears almost without a trace. No one seems to pick up on it, despite the extraordinary revelation it contains. Maybe people just don't believe Ian Wetherill. He is Duke Wetherill's son, after all. And Robert Wilson, the doctor who sold the photograph to the mail, doesn't feature once in his account. Instead, Ian says it's an insurance broker called Chambers who played the role of the middleman. To some, it may look like he's trying to take credit for the iconic photograph so that he can cash in on the renewed interest in the Loch Ness Monster. It's bound to be good for business getting his name in the paper like that. Or maybe the story is overlooked because a few days later, Peter Scott's article appears in Nature, accompanied by the eagerly awaited underwater photographs. It's fair to say that Scott's article, Naming the Loch Ness Monster, kicks up a storm of controversy. Not only does the respected naturalist come down firmly on the side of Nessie's existence, he goes so far as to propose a zoological name for the species. Nessie Terris Rhomboterix. Loosely translated as the marvel from Ness with the diamond-shaped fin. It's a highly significant proposal because it raises the monster's status as a myth some people believe in to a scientific fact. The new photographic evidence, with Peter Scott's weight behind it, blows Ian Wetherill's taproom confession out of the water. The monster faithful don't need the surgeon's photograph to believe anymore. Fast forward 15 years to 1990. Zoologist and monster investigator David Martin receives a call from Adrian Schein, leader of the Loch Ness Project, an organization set up to conduct scientific research on the loch. Adrian has just come across a cutting of the 1975 Mandrake column in some papers he was looking through. He is surprised he has never seen it before and asks David to do some digging. It's January 1991 by the time David visits the Cross Keys pub in Chelsea only to discover that Ian Wetherill died a few years earlier. He gets chatting to one of the regulars, an elderly man who knew Ian. This man doesn't remember Ian ever talking about Loch Ness, but mentions that he had a son called Peter who lives nearby. Maybe he knows something about this monster business. Peter Wetherill doesn't know anything directly, of course, because he wasn't born in 1934. But he points David Martin in the direction of someone who he thinks might be able to help. Someone who hasn't entered our story before. 
whose name did not appear in the original Daily Mail article and has not appeared in any Loch Ness Monster literature up to this point. A man entirely unknown to monster advocates and skeptics alike. But in 1991, he's the only man still alive who knows the truth about the so-called surgeon's photograph. His name is Christian Sperling. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So who is Christian Sperling? By the time David Martin catches up with him, he is a frail old man with white hair and mustache, living out his days with his wife Joy in the southern English town of Worthing. It's a long way from Loch Ness. Despite his 87 years and failing health, Christian still has a mischievous glint in his eye. He shows David some of his paintings. There are mainly copies of paintings by his father, the noted maritime artist, Jack Sperling. The elder Sperling died in 1933, and Christian, a talented artist in his own right, carried on turning out reproductions of his father's work to exploit the healthy market that existed back then. But as well as being Jack Sperling's son, Christian is also Marmaduke Wetherill's stepson, Christian's mother, Helen, had divorced Jack Sperling when Christian was a small boy. Duke was her second husband. Helen was an actress, so there's showbiz as well as art in Christian's blood, which may explain a career stint as a cameraman in the movie industry. It may also explain how he became involved in the saga of the surgeon's photograph. Here's how he recalls the incident when he's interviewed by David Martin and fellow investigator Alistair Boyd. All I got was a message from Weatherall saying, Christian, can you make me a monster? The hoax was a family affair, Christian remembers. His stepbrother Ian, the future landlord of the Crosskeys pub, was told by his father to buy a toy submarine. Ian and Christian make the model together. They construct it out of layers of plastic wood built up on top of the submarine's conning tower to create the monster's neck. When it's finished, the monster's body is about 14 inches long with a 12-inch neck. Christian solders a lead strip to the underside of the submarine to keep the monster upright in the water. The old man was very pleased with it when he got it, says Christian. Asked about how he came up with the monster's iconic shape, Christian explains, well, a monster. It's got to have a long neck, I suppose. Like a sea serpent. It was sheer imagination and a little bit of noose. They test their creation on a pond in the family garden. The effect is exactly what Duke is looking for the monster sits perfectly in the water, its head surging upwards as if it has just risen from the depths. And there's no sign of the toy submarine it's been built on top of. There, just as Ian described it in the Mandrake interview, they find a quiet inlet and stage the photograph. The rest, as they say, is history. After the picture is taken, Christian Sperling's involvement in the Loch Ness Monster is at an end. His interest, too. When David Martin and Alistair Boyd catch up with him in the early 90s, 
he has no idea of the impact the image he helped to create has had on the world. David and Alistair find this hard to believe. But then they realize that Christian doesn't have a television and hardly ever glances at a newspaper. I hadn't got any time to look at all this junk as I call it. It's all a load of codswallop, he tells the two investigators. As to why he went along with his stepfather's outrageous scheme, Christian says at one point, it was interesting. We got a lot of fun out of it. He was a maker and a creator, a practical problem solver. This was clearly the kind of challenge that appealed to him. But what about the moral implications of perpetrating a fraud? Christian has this to say. We were the sort of family who took everything as a big joke, and we'd read these things, have a damn good laugh, and chuck the paper away or something like that. Which may explain why the hoax remained a secret until Ian Wetherill's chat with Mandrake in 1975. There's only one loose end left to tie up, how the respected London gynecologist Robert Kenneth Wilson came to be mixed up in the hoax, the man whose profession gave the surgeon's photograph its name, and whose impeccable reputation lent it credibility. The clue is in the name Chambers, mentioned by Ian Wetherill in the Mandrake article as the man who sold the photo to the Daily Mail. Maurice Chambers, it turns out, was a mutual friend of Marmaduke Wetherill and Robert Wilson. Judging from their involvement in the prank, all three men shared the same wicked sense of humor. It seems likely that Duke gave the reel of film to Chambers and he passed it on to Wilson. Ian Wetherill was simply mistaken in thinking that it was Chambers who had sold the photograph to the mail. It's obvious why Duke wanted Wilson to front the photograph. He needed it to come from someone who would be taken seriously by the newspaper he was about to dupe. But why would Wilson go along with it? We know from Duke's ambitious movie projects that he had the power to draw other people into his schemes, and it seems that the respectable Mr. Wilson had the temperament to go along with it. A number of people who knew him describe him as a prankster. The word crops up again and again. But do we have any evidence that he was definitely involved in this particular prank? The answer is, yes, we do. We have his own word on it. Five years after the publication of the doctor's photograph, the world will be at war. R.K. Wilson will give up his medical practice and return to the army once more. One evening in 1940, over a few drinks in the officer's mess, Colonel Wilson will confide to a group of fellow officers about the time he and a friend hoaxed the local inhabitants of Loch Ness with a fake photograph and how the press got a hold of it and the publicity scared them so much that they vowed to keep quiet about the whole business. Maybe this confession was brought on by the pressures of warfare, a soldier unburdening himself as the prospect of death looms, or maybe he just wanted to entertain some friends with an amusing story. As it happened, Colonel Wilson survived the war and lived on until 1969. His secret was not made public until more than 20 years after his death. The truth finally comes out on March 13, 1994, when David Martin and Alistair Boyd's article exposing the famous surgeon's photograph as a hoax is published in the Sunday Telegraph. The article appears a few months after the death of the last surviving man involved in this monster deception, Christian Sperling. Christian dies in November 1993. After telling all in a series of interviews to investigators David Martin and Alistair Boyd, Unlike most deathbed confessions, it doesn't seem that it was a terrible burden of guilt that kept Christian from telling anyone what he had done. Simply that he had put it out of his mind and got on with his life. 
And have his posthumous revelations done anything to shatter belief in the Loch Ness Monster? Not for the faithful. In fact, there are still those who are so invested in the authenticity of the doctor's photograph that they believe that the real hoax is the claim that the image is hoaxed. Besides, belief in Nessie has never rested on one single piece of evidence. If the surgeon's photograph is proven to be fake, then there's always the 1975 underwater photographs championed by Peter Scott. And if they're not genuine either, then there are countless smudgy videos and sonar anomalies that can be interpreted to prove Nessie's existence. The world may have been mapped, measured, cataloged, and classified, but that doesn't mean there are no more mysteries in it. People still need something to believe in. With its unfathomable depths and remote northern location in the highlands of Scotland, Loch Ness is perfectly placed to answer that need. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet E. Howard Hunt, an ex-CIA agent who, on his deathbed, claimed to be part of a conspiracy to assassinate President John F. Kennedy. He tells his son that Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson was in on the whole scheme. But was Hunt simply confused? Lying, perhaps, to gain notoriety before death? Or is his confession the final piece in a puzzle that has fascinated conspiracy theorists for over half a century? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Roger Morris. Supervising editor, Alex Benedin. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Edited by Rob Plummer. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Mix Master by Kean Ryan Morgan. <laughs>